Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, everybody. Hey, monkeys. What's up? Welcome to Snark Monkey number 38 with Jack Epps Jr., And first off, let me welcome anyone who might be attending the Los Angeles Podcast Festival this weekend. As I record this and as I post this episode on Saturday, uh, it is the weekend of the PodFest in Los Angeles, the, I believe, the fourth annual. I I am in attendance, although not currently, because even at 9 a.m. Pacific time, as I have come to learn, and I totally um, relate to, Podcasters tend to be late risers because they can be. (laughs) So the podcast festival doesn't even really get going until noon today. So I'm posting this now, and if by chance I have met you at the L.A. PodFest this weekend and I've forced my business card upon you and told you about my podcast and you're happening to listen to the latest episode, welcome. By the way, make sure you follow me on Twitter at the Snark Monkey. Also on uh, what do you call that? The Facebook, and you can subscribe on iTunes, or uh, it's on iHeartRadio, or on the website at SnarkMonkey.net, which is probably maybe where you're listening right now. If I forced my card upon you, okay. So back to business. Great conversation here. Uh, another USC guy, actually a current USC muckety muck. Jack Epps Jr., uh, heading up the writing department at USC's School of Cinematic Arts. He has some sort of fancy title that we talk about here at the beginning. I I say he heads up the writing department. That sounds right. Uh, But here's the point. Jack Epps uh, was involved in some of the biggest screenplays in the 80s. Top Gun? Anybody? Heard of it? Have you heard of it? Um, also, he wrote Legal Eagles, which was a Robert Redford, Daryl Hannah vehicle that Ivan Reitman directed. He, uh, The Secret of My Success with Michael J. Fox, a huge 80s comedy, a wide range of stuff. Now, I immediately want to upfront apologize. Two titles I did not ask him about, and I regret it now in hindsight, and I'm hoping there will be a Jack Epps Jr. Part 2, because we never covered Turner and Hooch. The Tom Hanks dog cop movie where the dog dies. And, oh, spoiler alert. The dog dies at the end. Sorry. And Anaconda. Anna freaking Conda. I am a, I, I, I'm, I'm telling you right now, I hope I'm learning something at the podcast festival this weekend because that is a terrible podcast moderator to not cover Turner and Hooch and Anaconda. I got to Dick Tracy, the Warren Beatty movie with like every other human being alive at the time, including Madonna, Dustin Hoffman, and Al Pacino. Uh, But no, didn't talk Turner and Hooch and didn't talk Anaconda. I regret it. However, this is a really great discussion about the art and craft of screenwriting. He's got a book coming out, Jack does, called um, Screenwriting is Rewriting. And uh, he's all about the discipline and tenacious nature of writing that doesn't sound or even feel that arty, but it's kind of the point. Uh, he and his partner, Jim Cash, went through, well, you'll hear about it, how, how long it took them to actually get their first screenplay produced, how much work they put in to get to that point. And I believe it's probably even tougher now than it, than it was for them then. How about I shut up now, since I've already proven and admitted to being a terrible podcasting, you know, host thing. See, I can't even talk. What am I doing? I need to go back. Okay, I'm going to head to the podcast festival. I'm going to take a seminar, and next episode will be so much better because of what I learned. Hey, uh, thanks to the Los Angeles Podcast Festival for hosting such a cool event. I hope that I get a lot out of it. I'm not sure yet. Haven't even really got there. Again, things don't get going until noon. I'm going to see if I can heckle Mark Marin. 
Now, why would I do that? Why would, why would I do that? I just want attention. All right, here's uh, Snark Monkey number 38, Jack Epps Jr. Take okay. your name, sir. My name is Jack Epps Jr. Oh, we're doing a little on the side. But okay, closer to your mouth. Sort of like dental X-rays. Exactly. Yeah, the molar back here, Doc, is giving me really pain. You know what I mean? That's right. Now here, let me put the yeah. uh, leaded vest on you. Yeah, thank you very much. And I'll much. go into the other room. Yeah. Isn't that yeah. the? That's one of the scariest things in modern science, where somebody puts a lead vest on you <laughs> that weight you. The, you feel the weight. Yeah. They jam this thing in your mouth that's very uncomfortable every time I've ever done it. Point, obviously very powerful x-rays up to your face, and then they go around a leaded wall to be away from it and click a millisecond of an x-ray. Probably because they're making the cavities they're going to fill right there. See, that's oh, that's the scheme. We see. think it's x-rays, but it's actually a cavity-making machine. Now, see, it was such a simple conspiracy to think that dentists gave you candy on the way out just because <laughs> they wanted to develop more bad <laughs> habits. But I guess in these healthier times... That's right, exactly. Uh, they're just shooting, you know... Uh, deteriorating x-rays right, in your exactly. face. Jack Epps Jr., uh, a delight to talk to you. There's so much to cover here, and let's first of all start with, well, what is your title right now at USC? My title right now is I'm an associate professor and chair of the Writing for Screen and Television Division at the School of Cinematic Arts. Yes. Does that all fit on your business card? <laughs> it does. It's a very big card. It's, it's an 8x10. Okay. So yeah. you, you went It lights big... up, too. The card sort of blinks. Oh, wow. Neon yeah. and yeah. everything. Yeah. Um, so you went big card as opposed to tiny print. I think that's smart. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's yeah. good. Right. Um, that's a big deal. And USC, more than ever, you know, when I, I, I attended USC 1980 to 85-ish, and it was a big deal then because people had first started discovering USC, that film schools even existed, thanks to one Mr. Lucas and others who had become that new breed of filmmaker, and there was this mad rush. It was the new rock and roll. If there was rock and roll in the 80s, that was it. Uh, It has maintained that level to the point now where it's basically the film school, right? Well, it really is, because it covers so much. You know, film school tends to think of film but it's actually today it's television it's all it's all media it's interactive gaming because it's entertainment and it's all so blended together today i mean it used to be simple when it was a film school but now it's truly a media school and the challenge of all these programs is to stay current because things keep changing all the time you know product delivery screens what does it all mean yeah and technology so, i mean across yep. the board i mean you've probably seen just in the last 5 years alone just the delivery method of content is is so vastly different right. and that I think this would be an interesting conversation that actually affects the kind of content being created. It I does. mean, the the because I, I was just comparing notes with somebody. I think I even talked to somebody about it on this podcast, Trey Calloway. How I've been binge watching The Walking Dead. I'm finally catching up on it. That show I don't think was designed for binge watching because I'm I got really depressed. <laughs> I mean, I think you can handle doses of it once a week, but. Um, I don't know that anybody was thinking from a content standpoint that that relentless nature of what's going on in that show, how it would impact people. While other shows that are lighter or uh, even a house of cards that has kind of a, 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 through, uh, a through story, you know, a, a string going through there, they must be thinking differently as they create this content, knowing people might sit down for three, four, five, six, seven, eight hours to watch it. Well, I think that Breaking Bad was the show that changed that, and that means it was Netflix then that changed it because people get all these discs and watch them at home. Right. And that was a whole – I mean, it happened by accident. Vince Gilligan said the reason the show stayed in the air was because Netflix came out and people could binge watch it, and then they caught up to the show. Otherwise, he felt it wouldn't have been on as long. That's right. Yeah, because it did. It wasn't exactly doing that well. It exactly. had this uh, odd reputation, but when people did find it via next Netflix, you're that's absolutely right. right. So, so that, that, that's actually technology. I mean, it seems like DVD, but how it's delivered and how mm-hmm. it comes to the home, which then leads to streaming, which then leads to a whole different approach. And then, of course, there's web content. So, you know, and that's different, too, because what's a webisode? We actually teach webisodes, writing webisodes and producing and directing webisodes. And, because it's a very different format. 
that in terms of what you're delivering in a very short period of time. So do you see young people coming in with this attitude? Certainly when I was there, uh, the TV wasn't even very well respected. It was all about, I want to write movies, I want to make movies, I want to be a, a movie director or producer. Uh, do you see them coming in with this idea that I'm good with making short content, I, I, I'm okay with making stuff for a, a website? Do you see that change, or is there still this kind of focus on the movies, or is it spread across? It's really spread across, and, and, and you know, every student's a little bit different. Depends on what they come in. I mean, there's grads and undergrads, and those are, those are two different types of students. So for the undergrads, they're much more media savvy. They watch a lot more online, so they're, they're focused to making more online series. In terms of our writing students, they're really love te- they really love television right now. So they're coming there to study TV, which we in the last five years have totally re- revised our curriculum. So it's, it's, we focus on television in a big way, episodic, pilot writing, creating series. I mean, it's just it's something that is exciting. There was a stat that it's believed that there are over 400 episodes of primetime scripted television on this year. Now, give me that again. 400 episodes of primetime scripted television. Wow. Yep. And I'm sure that's a record. That's unprecedented, I would imagine. Uh, And you, I want to go back a little bit, and we'll we'll talk about um, um, your project here, because that looks fascinating. We'll circle back around to that. All right. But um, I want to talk about you as a (laughs) There it is. Screenwriting is rewriting. Oh, thank you. Oh, wow. I I just coined that just now myself. You can use that if you like. Thank you. Uh, but you are—you started as a writer, and you came out of television, correct? Uh, did, you did some television. I did. You know, I, I came up to California. I came out actually to be a director, uh, like everybody in the early '70s. It was the new wave directors, and, and so that was. Is exciting. that who flipped the switch for you? That, that you were watching Truffaut? Or yeah, the, I mean, all those things. Suddenly, you know, cinema was alive, and there were reasons to go to movies, and they really changed your life. And there was a lot of things being said, and you wanted to be—I wanted to be that person who created those, you know, those movies. And 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 I love being—I love holding a camera and shooting a camera. It's a very new wave in terms of all that stuff. The handheld, you mean? Absolutely. Kind of yeah. the, the yeah. rougher style. Well, being the, involved in it, you know, yeah. that, that's part of film is great because you're sort of, there's this dance that goes on. You're part of this wonderful choreographed dance. But coming out to California, you know, I had no money. I was from Michigan. Uh, Did I, you, you grew up in Michigan? Yes, grew up in Detroit. What? what oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Give yeah. me a little sense of what it's like to grow up in Detroit. I've talked to other people from there. I, I don't know that people today, they immediately think, you know, a terrible, depressed, right. crime-ridden city, which it may very well be, and it's, it's struggling to kind of come back from that. But it's but it's always had a reputation as a rough, urban town. Well, you know, Detroit in the 50s and 60s was an amazing place. It, not only was it the center of car culture sure. and wonderful cars in the 50s and 60s. So as a kid growing up there, I mean, you just watched. I knew every car and every model. and I mean, you just knew this. Yeah, and, they were rolling right off uh, the line and onto the streets. And if you didn't have a new car every year, you were out of fashion. Really? Because, oh, cars that was were, a thing. Cars are fashion style, and therefore yeah. you want to have that latest Cadillac or that latest Chevy Bel Air or whatever it was going to be. So your family uh, did? Oh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, we did. We had a 59 Caddy with the long fins in the back, all that sort of Beautiful. stuff. It was great. And Detroit was also great because of the music center. I mean, not only with Motown, everybody knows Motown, but also a huge jazz center. Right. There was a lot of rock and roll, Bob Seger. So music and, and cars and a lot of beer, you know, <laughs> because it was a very blue-collar culture. People worked really hard during the week, and the whole point of the week was to find the party on the weekend. Yeah, but the, it was still reflected in the, the arts, reflected it, and the business reflected absolutely, that. Yeah. Absolutely. And it was also a movie town. We had because Detroit was built in the twenties, so in fact, it still is a twenties town. So we had huge movie palaces: the Fox Theater, the Michigan Cinerama. I mean, so part of my culture of growing up was to see big screen movies. Yeah, I mean, huge. Event, event movies, event movies, but also put on a theaters built in the twenties. Much like if you do the uh, L.A. Conservatory, conservatory uh, tour of Broadway theaters, it's, which is really I highly recommend. It's the same sort of thing. Here, they've, a lot have been turned into churches, which, yeah. which actually preserves the theater, which is a good thing. Yeah. And uh, so it was, it was an interesting place to grow up. Um, what did your parents do? My dad was, depending upon the year, he did many things. Really? Yeah. He started in the brewery supply business, uh, selling malt, hops, grain. Okay. And wow. then he moved into building motels and hotels and built them and ran them for a while and ended up in scrap steel business. Uh, I mean, just he was that guy. 
Huh? Jack of all trades, kind of hopped around. Yeah, sort of, just different things. Yeah. where things went, sold the hotels, bought the, you know, all that sort of stuff. It was, it was interesting. And mom was homemaker. Just, yeah, just, yeah, yeah, homemaker. I mean, she was a candy striper, worked at a hospital. Um, so you know, that's how she gave back. Any showbiz leanings anywhere in the family? Well, showbiz leanings, we, we would always f- go to New York a lot and see opening Broadway shows. Mm-hmm. And uh, my folks are great, and they didn't really stick as a babysitter. So my sister and I went and saw, like, Sound of Music, Broadway cast, West Side Story, Broadway cast. I mean, just just great, great shows. Gypsy with Ethel Merman. I can do a pretty good Ethel Merman impersonation. Oh, don't even <laughs> throw that out there <laughs> without <laughs> thinking that you're going to get called on that yeah, a little bit, Jack. Exactly. All right, we'll see how we get along here yeah, in a little while. That's right, okay. Um, so. <laughs> So you were so you were drawn to live theater quite a bit. Did you have yeah, well, aspirations? You know, I, wasn't, I wasn't drawn to it as much yeah. because I, what I did was I was it sort of was part of this um, entertainment, this sort of bravado, this, this this sort of largeness that Broadway gave, right? Um, and then influenced by a lot of just big theater in Detroit and movies, and you know, I was raised on basically the same popcorn movies everybody else was at sure. that time. So when the new wave guys came around, you. I mean, you've already talked about big event movies, big theater, sure. kind of these big splashy, flashy things. What, what kind of kid were you as you were growing up? Were you just normal kid? Were you an athlete? Were you a good student? You know, I, uh, it's, uh, I played ice hockey. Yeah. It actually saved my life in a sense. You know, as a kid, unless you find something to grip onto and sort of focus on. And I be a part of something. Being part of a team, which was a huge, great experience. And my position was a goaltender. So it was, you know, be part of a team and that last guy, which I sort of always liked. You yeah. Know, I, I didn't have to sit in the bench. You know, I was always on the ice all the time. Which, oh, that's which great. Which is my idea of a good time. All right. So you were part of a group, so you were accepted and you weren't some sort of loner outsider type. Yeah. But did you have a creative bent somewhere in there? I was actually, I was, when I was really about 13, 12 and 13, a friend of mine got me excited about guitars. And I started playing guitar. And Bob Dylan came out, first album, you know, Freewheeling came out at that time. And so I'd be, it was young Bob Dylan sitting in my room at night and just writing songs. So for years, I just wrote songs. Never showed them to anybody, just wrote them in a book. But actually, that was my initial writing. Uh, and I'm pretty, was, yeah yeah and so in poetry in a sense you were you were thinking in terms of lyric of, yeah just lyric and, and trying to you know very Dylan esque and, and and trying to you know create those meaningful uh, songs and stuff like that so. so what motivated you to pick up from that environment uh, uh, blue collar Michigan you're you've got a little bit of creative something going on there what made you say I'm going to go up and go to Los Angeles. Couple of things. So uh, one thing I neglected in terms of the backstory was my dad at one point owned a camera store, and he ended up with two projectors and a Bolex camera, and he converted our back room into a little movie theater. He even he even had pictures that would swing out, so there was a, the projection booth and swing closed. Oh wow! So he used to get he knew the, dis, the Columbia distributor and used to get prints to show at the house. So we would have screenings at my house of movies, uh, which was now it's like okay, everybody's watching movies. Sure. But at that time, having a movie in your house was really exciting. And having a, a de facto screening room, Absolutely. really. Absolutely. had a big screen, screen and the whole thing. And oh, so, I mean, he was great. that sort of, you know, little guy who would do those things. Yeah. Uh, you know, had, a, had an editor in the back, little things to splice movies when they broke. And right. So as a kid, one, seeing movies in the home was, was very informing. Being in the projection booth was even more fun. Because to me, it was a great place to watch a movie. Because you, 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 there's a projector in all its majesty with, this, with the film going through it, and making a sound and the light flashing. And, and, and the film smells quite wonderful. Warm yeah. film. I can't, it's hard to explain. But know, it does. It, it's really hard to explain now because it's so uncommon. Absolutely. Uh, when I was part of my work-study program at USC, I worked for the cinema department for a while projecting films. Sure. And right. uh, Drew Casper and a bunch That's of right. those guys. And I would sit in the especially in the warmer months, very, 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 very (laughs) warm booths, um, uh, changing reels. But it is, you're still enjoying the film, you're still watching the film, but there is this kind of more than tactile kind of experience of being in the room where that image is coming from. It's another level of film, because you're actually with the film itself, you know what I mean? The the whole hard film. Yeah, you're like a part of it. So, so, uh, I learned when I was younger, like 13 or something, how to, how to thread the projector. Mm-hmm. And that was like a breakthrough when I look back at it because threading a projector was – I could show films to my friends. And, and so I started screening whatever we had, home movies. My dad had a Bolex. We took a bunch of 60-millimeter home movies and uh-huh. spliced them together. So I was at Michigan State, and I was taking creative writing. I, I actually went there as a zoology major, a pre-med. Yes. Wow. Now, where did that come from? Well, uh, we were all doing it. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you, you know, all your you friends, crazy would... kids back there. <laughs> you know, listen to Dylan smoke a little pot, study animals. Of course. Well, it was an eight a.m. chemistry class. Just blew me out. You know, Michigan State is like a headwind. It's snowing. I didn't make many of those, and oh. and, and so I realized that you know. I wrote a short story in a, in a class, and it was actually quite good. Uh, it, was, it was by accident. I was trying to write Hemingway, and I was writing this Hemingway thing. But I, 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 you know, I thought I had I needed a couple of bottles of wine to to write like Hemingway. Got sloshed. It's, what I wrote that night was horrible, but I wrote about the Hangover, which was actually pretty good. I yeah. actually wrote a very good Hangover story. Oh, great! So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's I, so I said, "Wow, I can get a degree if I just do writing. I can keep doing this." And so I switched over to creative writing. And spent time, you know, just working on trying try to be a writer, uh, realizing that it was really hard, <laughs> really hard, and I wasn't that good at it. But went to a film festival at Michigan State, student film festival, um, looked at the work, came out and said to a friend, I can do better than that. Ah. Next year I went to student didn't film. Didn't seem so hard, did it? Didn't seem so hard. Went to, made a film, at, uh, took a class, made a film. And literally, I had a great time making the film, and literally showing the film and stepping into the class to talk about the film afterwards, my life changed. That I had communicated through this film in a way that I never could communicate through a song, through a story, through a pantry painting. I, I couldn't work there, but here I suddenly communicated to an audience in a way that was life-changing. And their response was really amazing. And so I made three short films at Michigan State. They all won awards at different film festivals and stuff like that. And said, well, I'm going out to California. I really want to make movies. Um, so you found the way to connect to people in a creative way. It just and, and, and it seems like it came kind of late. Like you discovered this, this skill. Oh, right. I Jun- mean, as a junior, yeah. you know, junior, almost a senior, I stayed an extra year at Michigan State just because I could get access to equipment. Yeah. And at that time, I, you know, making films was really expensive. All right. So you come out of making these movies, getting great response, winning some awards. Right. You are young. How old are you? When uh, you... 22. All right. So so you are filled with spit and vinegar and hubris, and you're going to take Hollywood by storm, right? I think by storm, well, I think put... I was going to come out here and, yeah. and, and just like try to find my place in it. All right. And so try you, to didn't, fit you didn't have your chest puffed out expecting kind of big things happening right away. Uh, no, I didn't. I, okay. I expected I had, uh, you know, I, uh, I was going to have to pay a lot of dues to get there. All right. But I think the, the mis- That is way the... more uh, self-aware than most <laughs> 22-year-olds coming to L.A., by the way. Well, I think part of it, being a hands-on filmmaker, making documentaries, spending a lot of time in the editing room, knowing how hard it was, and, and part of the mystery that everybody goes well, how do I go from being this little guy in Michigan to directing for the studios? And how do you make a movie for them? I mean, you know, that's a lot to figure out. Yeah. Okay. I, I get that now because you're right. When I came to USC, it was so geared toward a yes, direct right. pipeline to the industry because it right. was right there. And you had people who worked yes. in it in Michigan, at Michigan State, um, probably not the same sensibility. No. Yeah. No. So what was your first step? Get a job. <laughs> <laughs> and, and did you? Yeah. You know, I wrote about 60 letters to get a job carrying cables and, and uh, just being a grip because uh, – and also assistant cameraman because that was a skill set I had. So part of it was trying to pay rent and, and just try to get my feet landed. And the other thing was I knew that I, could, I wasn't going to get paid to direct, so the best thing to do is to start writing scripts uh, because that's how you direct on paper. Mm-hmm. So in essence, I was directing on paper. All right. So what was what would you say, Jack, was the the thing that got you your first big break? I mean, what was the what was the door opening? What was who was the champion? What was that flashpoint moment for you? You know, it's interesting because I think opportunity is built on many steps. Right. It's a series of one. It's a series of being open to possibilities, taking advantage of what seems to be a, a path, whether it's a path you plan or not, and then following up on the other opportunity. Interesting enough. I'd written some scripts. They weren't very good because I didn't know what I was doing, you know, and, and, and it was hard to get scripts at that time. There was, nothing was online. You, to get a script, you actually had to, you know, make an exchange because they weren't floating all over town. Right. So we, we traded scripts and stuff. So interesting enough, I, I got an internship through the AFI as an outpatient. I wasn't registered as a student. I just walked in the door and, and said, hey, I'd like an internship. They said, fine, great. Uh, it, it was amazing. And they set me up with Tony Bill on a movie called Hearts of the West, Howard Zeef directing and Jeff Bridges. And I was an intern on that, that production for close to six months, three months pre-production, then on, on production. And that sort, of, that, that sort of changed everything because for me as a kid from Michigan, suddenly I was on an MGM stages every day mm-hmm. watching a movie get shot 
you know, shot by pickup by pickup and, and seeing this entire process. And the light bulb went on in the middle. As I said, you know, everybody's looking at those actors. The cameras are focused on those. And everything is about them. So if you're writing a script, it better be about them. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of, in, you know, it, it informed my approach to, to writing is I've got to write performance. I've got to write things for actors to play. I so have to write looking roles. back, what were your earlier scripts doing that didn't satisfy that? Oh, they were about ideas and stuff, and there was mm-hmm. no characters, and it was pretty much, you know, the, the, the stuff of these, more imagistic than it was about examining humanity, examining this path that we were on. Right. So the, so the structure of a character or characters and that arc and watching their specific personal journey wasn't yes. present in those parts. Exactly. So and, then, yeah. and then the other great uh, thing, I was, uh, uh, before I get my current my partner, uh, Jim Cash, I worked with Anderson House, and we sold a television show uh, episodic to Kojak at that time. We sold the treatment but could not get the screenplay. So that was so disappointing. They, they, they just, we kept pitching and pitching and came back, and they just had somebody else wrote the screenplay. So I'm watching that Kojak, and I was sitting there watching the show. with We had the treatment idea, you know, right. story by uh, and I watched what another writer did to it, and I realized that all we had been pitching was the plot. And this other writer wrote this intricate story about this person going through a crisis. And that was another great lesson. that I, Painful, but it was a great lesson of realizing that that's, it's about the people. Well, it was important, again, I see this kind of lack of hubris on your part to go, oh, they destroyed our whatever. But you recognized what element was missing from your efforts. I didn't intend to. It sort of hit me like a ton of bricks right. that, where I had missed it. I, you know, I, well, I tell my students, I truly believe in it. You learn more from failure than success. You don't learn a lot when you succeed because when you succeed, you're all taken with yourself. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm really brilliant. Yeah. But when you fail, you go back and say, oh, why didn't this work? What happened here? And, and, and it produces opportunities for growth. Well, you also have to have it in you that you want to accept that learning opportunity. I mean, it, right. because there are plenty of people in every aspect of show business from from acting to every other part that has a creative bent. When you when you get negative feedback and when you get something that might be considered a failure, it, it's very tough to come back from that if you have any sort of ego whatsoever right. and to learn from that because you want people, obviously, you want people to like your stuff immediately. And when it doesn't happen, you either go, okay, this wasn't meant for me, or you go, okay, how... Uh, what, are they wrong, <laughs> and, right, and can right. I keep doing what I'm doing, or am I really missing an element? And you took from that. Now, so what was what was the next phase for so you? So the next phase was uh, I had a, a fortuitous meeting with one of my instructors, Jim Cash, at Michigan State. I went pick, I had a motorcycle back in Michigan. I was going to drive across country, and I thought I'd go look at Jim, who uh, was a very good teacher. You know, he taught me some minor things on screenwriting. I had one class, and, and uh, it, the fortune was that the class was full. I had to talk to Jim into letting me enroll. You know, I mean, those sort of interesting things. So I, I met with him at the Michigan State Union. We threw out like 10 ideas. Nothing really clicked. I said, well, okay, well, we'll keep talking. And driving cross country in the middle of Utah somewhere, I said, ooh, that really, I get it. I get what he was talking about. And called him when I got to California and said, yeah, let's develop this idea. So for two and a half years, we worked on a screenplay together. I mean, both had jobs. We were both you know, paying bills. And so it was part-time. But we went through five drafts kept saying, not good enough. My experience from Hearts of the West told me that we had to enter the business only at the top. You can't enter the business in the middle as a screenwriter. You've got to enter where everyone goes, yeah, this is really at this level. So we went through a laborious process until we felt this script was at at, at a high level. Through a friend, we got an introduction to an agent who... Let me ask you, how many many versions do you think you did if you can... Really? At least five. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and did that stay pretty standard over the course of working on scripts? Well, I always say, you know... Bef- I mean, before you even showed it to anybody? Yeah, well, in a sense, yes. I mean, yes. I mean, it, first drafts are not meant to be seen by anybody, right. except your closest friends who know you well. Uh, that's not what they're for. First drafts are for discovery. First drafts are to find things out, to, to see what you have. It's just to get something on paper. I mean, I, it's yeah. probably... And it's, is it... Was it always it, for me? It always has been. Is that the toughest draft for you? Just to just to puke it out? <laughs> well, I, I think I think any any time you're facing a blank page is really hard. Yeah, and that's why it's important to just start putting things down and just start. You know, I'm yeah. a very prep guy, so I like to prep before I write. I like to know a lot of things before I start putting words to paper. I like to know who the characters are, the story. I like to know what the structure is going to be. I work out all the scenes. So you're a meticulous detail guy. Yeah. How? What was Jim's part of the equation? 
Jim wrote wonderful dialogue. Okay. He, I mean, he studied the dialogue of the 40s, the, the, the romantic comedies, and so yeah. he had a flair to have that type of uh, repartee that it's rare to see. Those uh, are the best partnerships, right, where you bring good. completely different yeah. perspectives to we, it. We call it a words and music partnership. Yeah. And so it really was. Did you did you jive the whole time you worked together? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Well, one thing, we lived in two different places. Jim lived in East Lansing, Michigan, and I lived in Santa Monica. So... We uh, it kept us friends and not having a lot of fights, right. not being in the same room. Yep. Yeah, yeah. If we if we didn't agree on something, we hung up the phone. We thought about it, called each other an hour later, and we usually found something. Yeah. You know, we believe that passion ruled. It wasn't like my idea, or your idea. It was who was the most passionate, right? And who had the strongest instinct for it? Uh, because if you fought hardest for your idea, the other one would acquiesce because it obviously m- meant a lot. It meant to a you. lot more, and I had we had, you know, good partnerships are built on trust and faith and instincts and having you know like-minded tastes. I think I don't think you can have two separate tastes and work together. Uh, in the end, you know, you can have different influences. Jim and I love the same movies. We reference the same ideas. We went we went to Billy Wilder all the time. Yeah. You know? yeah. When you're asked, when you're in doubt, go to Billy Wilder. He worked it all out, and it's just a matter of of you know. You know, figuring out how he how he approached it. There you go. So I, I love the dynamic of the partnership because I think when when I talk to people who are part of one and when it mm-hmm. works, there is an interesting structure to it, which is similar sensibility, similar inspiration, similar background at yes. least creatively, but completely different sometimes methodology right. that complements each other. That's right. interesting. I think it works best because that way you're 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 basically creating this one one whole mm-hmm. as opposed to being competing. You can't be competing, well, my line of dialogue is better than yours. That that just doesn't work. No. And uh, Jim wrote wonderful dialogue. I mean, and the frustration was whenever movies would get made, invariably somebody would come on and do a polish or something like that, the first thing to do is change the dialogue, which right. would drive us crazy because right. at the end of the day, his dialogue was so sophisticated and so good that it should not have been changed. And usually if something needs fixing... It's it's probably more story points or structure than it, it is. is just what people yes. are saying to each exactly. other. Exactly. What was that script that you guys worked so hard on that first pass? It was called Izzy and Mo. Mm-hmm. It's about two prohibition agents in the twenties, based on real guys who dressed up in costume. One would dress up as a woman, dress up as a man. They go into a speakeasy to try to you know, they pour booze down their <laughs> down a, a little bladder, and then they'd say you know I have bad news here you know, and then they bust a speakeasy. <laughs> They were real characters, and so it was. It was you know, it's sort of a. We were influenced by the Sting in terms of structure and sure. tone, and you know. Oh God, the, that script is amazing. It's a beautifully written script. It really is, and and so we learned a lot from that script, just in terms of how to build scenes. Right, and uh, you know. Um, and now, uh, forgive me. Did that get made? Nope. Okay. <laughs> there was a movie of the week that that got made. Basically, to, to, we had seven unproduced screenplays till our first screenplay got made. Really? Yeah. Seven. Yep. And each of them had that. Labor- somewhat laborious process of, of of writing and rewriting. Rewriting, oh, exactly. Good. See exactly. what yeah. I'm doing yeah. there? We'll get yeah. to that. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, I mean, without talking about my book. Well, you can talk I, about I, your no, book. No, it's fine. I, I just think that rewriting for me, if I look back on it, what was what was the thing that really made the difference? It's it's my ability and desire to rewrite. In other words, knowing that you have to do it and knowing that it will get better in the process and that ability to – and that, that helped with having a partner because it's, rewriting alone is much tougher than rewriting with somebody else because you've got somebody to say, okay, come on. Uh, right, you know, right. So you know, we were cheerleaders to each other. It keeps you in the game. We also had a high standard, and so you, if, you can't um, just – Take take something that at a lower standard that you realize you know you're yeah. compromising you're compromising your ideal and you can't do that. I think that's important because there are so many scripts. I, and I talk to so many people who read so many scripts every day and tell me consistently how just how how bad they are. How they're just not finished. They're not complete. Right. How much work always has to be done. And yeah. when a really good one comes across. It may not even be the kind of script they're looking for. They're just so impressed that is that it is as good as it is. That it's it's that you walk into that house. It's like oh, we don't have to do a thing to this one. Right. Uh, and part of that is because people want their second or third version to be the one, and they have, and they're so precious about what it is that they don't want to hack away at it. And for you to have that attitude, that's actually not something a lot of writers I think have innately, which is I expect this to change rather drastically from A to Z. And I think that's important. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's important. I think, I think it's a hard mindset to get to. Um, you know, but 
I mean, part of it is realizing that you discover things along the way. Right. It's part of a process of development. You have an idea, the idea sounds good, and then trying to create that into these living, breathing characters with a really good story. I mean, a screenplay is a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's 110 pages. It's, you know, it's under two hours. A lot of long movies today. Yeah. But anyway, you know, <laughs> and, and, and it needs to, it's a very specific form that tells a story in a very specific way. Right. Um, so, you know, you, you, you have to learn how to master these techniques to basically be a good writer tell your story well. I mean, that's yeah. what it's about. Because the tools are already there. The structure is already there. I mean, there are very few people who can reinvent that structure and and come up with something totally unique. The fact is, you've already kind of got the bare bones right. of it. It's really about how, you know, trying to tell a, essentially the same structure we've been seeing forever in a different, unique way with great characters and a, and a great journey and something we quite haven't seen before in a, in a fresh way. That's, I guess, the challenge. It is the challenge. Which is also why we don't see that much anymore in movies right now. Well, that, that's a whole different issue. Yeah, I mean, that's I a whole different thing. I mean, the quick of that is that approximately 65%, 70% of box office is international. Yeah. So that means our domestic box office is only 30 to 35%. So from corporations' point of view, and they're, they're corporations, these are not you know small little movie companies. Right. These are major right. American corporations, and the movie division is a small little part of their bottom line. They want to make sure that, that they have the revenue. So which market are they going to play for? They're going to play for the domestic market? Market, or are they going to play for for China, for Brazil, for uh, India? Yeah, it's got to be the <clears throat> ultimate mass right. appeal. So I mean, and that and that's you know that that's changed the whole concept. Yeah. You know, all right, let's not talk about that. I'll get depressed. Well, uh, it is what it is. You know, know. <laughs> but, but I th- I think it is what it is, and and you know that's just and then we're seeing the it, that's one of the advantages of cable. That's one of the advantages of, of having internet. There are ways of, of Amazon. There are there are we see changes. You know, transparent ha- happened through a, a right a corporate structure. So so these these ideas can be done, and people are turning to television right. to do them now. And uh, there and there is amazing work going on. And also exactly. when you when you see artists, when you see names that you have seen do. You know, really unique, incredible films. Somebody like David Fincher, for instance, who right. immediately kind of attached himself to House of Cards. I mean, th- these guys are looking at that as an avenue where they can tell these bigger stories with these great characters Absolutely. and extend them beyond right. just that hour and a half or two or two hours and 25 minutes or whatever. Yeah. The Kensian storytelling. I mean, yeah. that's really what it is, these right. long these long serial right. narratives right. that are very interesting, you know, as, as, as when the ship arrived in, in, in Dickens' time, and people met the boat at the port and said, is little Nell alive, you know, from one of his serials. And people were standing at the dock wanting to know what happened What's to little Nell. Exactly. Yeah. It sounds like us getting our, you know, our streaming our favorite show. What's going to happen? It's you know, absolutely what yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, so let's get to you guys did click. What was, um, what was it that got the green light first that really set you guys on the path? Well, you know, we were fortunate that because our first script was was well received, we got we started getting assignments, and so then we actually sold a second spec, and that brought us attention to Joe Wazan, who's a producer, and we did a script for him called Whereabouts, uh, that was seen by everybody in town and got within seconds of getting produced, um, and then suddenly that fell through. Then we were hired to do Dick Tracy, uh, that went through three directors until that was put on a shelf, uh, and then our, our so you're you're uh, working making a living. Yep. With nothing getting actually nothing. on the screen. Getting close. Which happens a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. Getting close, you know, having people buzzing around it. Uh, and then we were offered uh, at an 8 a.m. meeting, I was offered by Jeff Katzenberg, 10 ideas or eight ideas. And one of them was this movie about these fighter pilots um, in San Diego called Top Gun. So I have my private pilot's license. And at that point, I'm thinking, well, if the movie doesn't get made, at least I'll get a jet ride out of this thing. <laughs> and as a pilot, if you can get up in a Navy jet, that's really great. Huge. So I figured, okay, they'll pay us. At least us. I'll have an experience uh, Exactly, out of it. exactly. Yeah. And uh, so that then, that was a very interesting research experience because although I'm a pilot, I'm flying straight and level on a little Cessna 150. And believe me, I'm not yanking a banking anywhere. But you fly a Navy jet. And, it, and what, what the experience that changed everything for the script was how physical that was. The experience of flying a Navy jet is exhausting. I was drenched with sweat. I was like I'd been on a huge workout uh, and just beaten up because of all those eight Gs and pulling things on a vertical and, and your spins and flips, and it doesn't stop. And these guys are just – they could think in ways that, you know, multidimensional. So it's important for you to actually have that physical experience to understand – 
that these guys are like athletes. These guys. That was the key. Yeah. I realized I called my partner and said, wait a minute, we've been thinking about this all wrong. This is a sport. Where where were you before? Where were these guys? Just, just. They were just kind of guys with well, you know, you know, bravado. It's John, and it's, John, it's John Wayne sitting in a yeah. thing, you know, because when you saw the movies before, they're all they're all you know straight and narrow. And, and even if you saw a uh, you know a Korean War movie, it's from a big distance, and you see a plane make a turn. You never really felt the physicality of it. Yeah, warfare was the struggle, but the physical act of flying right. a plane seemed like it was no exactly. no big deal. Exactly. And oh, so, in doing the research and meeting these guys and realizing that yes, these were the coolest guys in the planet, uh-huh. I teased them. I said, you know, guys, you're having too much fun. I'm gonna have to call the Pentagon and tell them that you're just enjoying yourself. Too much. I'm like, no, don't do that. Don't do that. You know, so I said, I'm just kidding. Come on. Don't take that so seriously. But, you know, they were such good guys and so smart. And what they did was amazing that uh, I called Jim and said, look, this is this is not what we think. This is about a sport. And these are the, some of the greatest, which I truly believe, some of the greatest athletes in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were running. We uh, Pete Pettigrew, who was our technical advisor, was doing the Ironman before anybody ever heard of it. It was just not known because yeah. that's who these guys were you know? I mean, they, they've changed now in terms of the whole profile has changed because right. of, of uh, uh, tail hook and all that other sort of stuff. Sure, that's sure. another story. Yeah, and so that we wrote that, and I very specifically said, I'm going to write a script that's going to get produced. I'm going to write this thing. They have to make this movie, and it was turned down. They, they it said, was. Yeah, they said when I handed it to the executive, he said, "There's too many planes in the sky. Nobody wants to see. <laughs> nobody wants to see all these planes flying around." I go, "Wait a minute, you don't understand. You've never. It, this is twenty-eight thousand feet. It's never been shot before." Because we had already talked to the military, we had their approval to use equipment, aircraft carriers, F-14s. They wouldn't give us all the gear because that was post-Vietnam. And anything positive about you know the military or something in some positive way, they were desperate for. Oh, yeah, yeah. But which yeah so how did how did you turn people around or or did somebody I did, else I did I then went off and, and worked for Ivan Reitman on Legal, Legal Eagles and right. said well okay it's another one number seven that's unproduced so you just assumed Top Gun was going to go on that pile of it did no, we worked hard it on was that on, but it, oh well it was in the pile by the way how do you walk away from something you've put that much effort into that you truly believe is as good a script because you just said you've said it several times now. You and Jim would work at the highest level possible. You weren't going to give anything to anybody until you felt like it was absolutely the best product. And continually seeing it not go anywhere, how do you keep going? Where do you get that from? You, you just dig down and keep going. That's all there is to is it. Is that Detroit I mean, blue-collar well, it, it, worker uh, ethic? I think I think it's part of that. And, and you just... You just realize that it's going to come. You know, getting a movie made is really hard. I mean, yeah. it's really hard. Stuff you can't control. You can't control. So you still believed you gave them something oh, I know really I good. I know okay. I did. So, I, said, I said, that they missed it. Yeah. And it does happen. I mean, uh, one of the best comedies I wrote, they just missed it. The, I, little did I know, the chief executive of, of that project didn't have a sense of humor. I'm serious. And he didn't sort of get it. So, and you go like, oh, well, that's great. The, well, the guy make, he's making comedy. Exactly. The guy making a decision doesn't have a sense of humor. Good. Wow. I'm sure glad I wasted six months on that. But with, with, what's interesting with, with Top Gun, what's different is that the studio had a turnover and a new executive uh, team came in and they had nothing in the pipeline. So they contacted Simpson Bruckheimer and said, what do you guys have? We need something. They reached up the shelf, pulled out, said, we really want to make this movie. And they said, let's go. Usually they don't because they don't want to make from an, an, another uh, um, uh, administration's right. work. They the really, previous regimes, they don't want the stink of something exactly. that, that failed, right? Exactly. Which failed it's, or it's, they didn't develop themselves, right. so therefore who's going to take credit for it? Right. But uh, Frank Mancuso said, let's make this movie. And so they're making the movie, and now suddenly we're writing for Ivan Reitman, we're writing Legal Eagles, and they're making Top Gun, and it was like, oh, who, who's going to? You know, it's rewrites to do, and so it was, it was being in the middle. So you went, you went from zero to sixty, if I can use a speed term. Um, I think about zero to, to two hundred because we yeah. had three films made in eleven months. Yeah, released. In 11 Amazing. Months. Yeah, yeah. So we went from zero to three films in eleven. So months. what's your mindset, you and Jim? Are you like? I mean, are you happy? Are you elated? Are you just stressed? Are you suddenly under the gun a little bit? Or are you okay? Well, you know what's interesting, if, and I think from a creative point of view. When when you're writing in obscurity, it's amazing because no one's looking over your shoulder. Right. Well, once you get a hit movie, everybody's looking over your shoulder. Everybody's kind of looking and seeing what you're doing next. And everybody has two cents to put in. When we're, I mean, Top Gun was not looked at as a major picture. It was just another thing in the development slate. Okay, maybe this is the movie here. Well, suddenly we went from guys working on those another thing in the development slate to the major studio movies. Right. And so suddenly they're looking over our shoulders on you know, and everybody is is it's a bigger piece of the pie. So that that became it's it's harder because 
you're sort of not only you're second guessing yourself, but you're getting a tremendous amount of input. And as anybody knows, you know, too many cooks spoil the pot, too much input. It so things happen that are somewhat beyond your control in right, a sense. Right. And decision making process becomes tougher because okay, the studio wants this, we've got this star attached here, the star I mean <laughs> you know, it's this stuff just happens. Sure. It just happens. For the most part, with the, these big movies, did you have ultimately have a good experience? Yeah, I, actually, yeah. I had I had very good experiences uh, uh, with with my the directors. I found them to be good collaborators. I had a, except for one experience that on the whole I thought was really good. I mean, so did Top Gun turn out the way you and Jim envisioned it? I mean, close... that's, a, that's a fair question. And one level, yes, in terms of the excitement and the and the flying and 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 all all of the energy. Uh, but those guys that you got to experience right. did. did did they sort of they sort of made them more accessible? Let's use that. Word. Okay, they they made them a little more high school rather than being astrophysicists. So you know <laughs> what I mean. Uh, and I think it was a right decision. I think from a commercial point of view, and those guys had you know Simpson Breitkammer, great commercial instincts. And for that movie, the 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 slight changes that were made in terms of the way the characters are presented made it a bigger commercial film. Sure. So and first viewing, I missed the guys that we had created. I mean, it was Maverick. We created Maverick and Goose and all those characters and Iceman. I mean, all came out of us. But uh, slightly different tints on those things. Well, so, so like tinting a shade of a color. You, you know were I mean? trying to reflect the guys you knew and, right. and met. Exactly. And and so they they didn't exactly nail that, but, the, but you felt there was still a sense of them there. Oh yeah, yeah. No, there's okay. definitely a sense of them there. It's just, it's, it was just sort of like you're, you know, you're changing a little bit of the orchestration slightly. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it, it, but again, I think they were all good decisions that were made there. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, any movie could be made fifty different ways depending upon who the director is, who the who the cast is. Casting is essential. So you know, because if you don't have the right cast, when we were writing Top Gun, we were writing it for Tom Cruise, always for Tom Cruise. We had him in mind from the very beginning. Oh, I didn't realize that. Well, okay. we had been watching him, and I, I liked what he had done in, in Risky Business. Everybody right. did. And so you the, had a bit of a right voice moves. to I go did. on. The voice was Tom, always for Tom. And so when I gave it to Simpson, Simpson Breckheimer, I told Jerry, I said, think Tom Cruise, which they did. They locked on and said, yep, great cast. They locked on. And, and then getting Tom at the end of the day was difficult because initially he didn't want to do it. So he wasn't sure. So he said, well, let's, why don't you go up to Point McGill and have a, a ride in a jet? So Tom drives up there. He's got long hair. He's on a motorcycle. And, and these flying guys, they don't give a care about this Movie guy they, yeah, exactly so they're out of their their idea of a good time is to take up a civilian toss him around like an you know an eggshell and just and then and they ha- probably gave tom cruise oh, yeah. an extra special right they did yeah they, they, <laughs> you know and they want you to puke all of yourself so right. of course he did and puked all of himself and said i love this but i've got to do this you know so and then yeah he, he and here he is by the way hanging on the outside of plans <laughs> at 50 something exactly. years old and he's still playing maverick he really is yeah yeah, yeah. He, he actually and that was that was a character that he Gripped and never quit. He yeah. realized that was his persona because he actually, after that, he does cocktail. He doesn't play the Maverick persona. Not that interesting. And then from then on, he's just totally, once, once Top Gun comes out, he just plays Maverick. Why this Top Gun, why is there still such an affection for that film even now? I mean, people continue to discover it, reference it, go back to it. There are lines from it. Uh, can you pick, figure out where in the zeitgeist that just kind of clicked on the right things you know it, it just it did come together it, yeah. it's it's just one of those and that's it's the thing you can't plan on it just happens right it's an amazing cast the casting's really good tony scott was the right guy to yeah. shoot this movie it's a great look you know there is a lot of it is fun a quintessential to it. 80s right. movie Absolutely. i mean if you if you ever wanted to sit down with a young person and they go what were the 80s like just put top gun on from fashion to music to everything look the style yeah, yeah. exactly exactly yeah. and it still see it still plays it's still it's cut tight it's a short movie. It's really well cut. It's, it looks great. I mean, they shot. There's no visual effects uh, as opposed to some modeling that was done. Um, other than that, it's all shot in the skies. So, Jack, who wrote uh, I Feel the Need, the Need for Speed? <laughs> well, Jim and I did. Oh, so, yeah. But you're, are you going to take credit for it or are you going to give it to Jim? I'll give it to Jim. Oh, really? Yeah. You could have taken it. I don't know. I'm not going to take credit for that. <laughs> no, no. It's, it, you know, that's the thing about the dialogue. It but came, there's that dialogue The dialogue thing. came, and, and we like, yeah, that was pretty good. We liked that one. We thought that was really good. That's great. So, yeah. So you have this great run, and you're working with big directors and big studios mm-hmm. and big studio movies. Dick Tracy did get made. Yeah, it did. Um, Four directors. 
That that's a wacky project. Yeah, it is a wacky project. It's the only one where the screenwriter stayed on as each director moved off. I mean, that that's that, really that unusual. was yeah, that was unusual. Yeah, yeah. yeah. boy, that uh, that's a, that is an oddity. I mean, that, there's just no other way to to no, put it. It is an oddity. It's worth watching just for that. I mean, it's so <laughs> just a, a strange film. I don't want to delve too much. Into no, no, that. I agree. And we didn't write it as a musical, and I saw it yeah. recently, and it's a musical, and it was not written. Oh, it wasn't written for a musical, and, and and it was interesting looking back at it. And and at that point, we were not involved. Warren went off and did his own thing, like mm-hmm. Warren will do. And to, if you're doing a musical, you got to cut the the narrative down. You got to tighten it up so there's there's room and that plays in. So to me, it goes off at rails. Uh, another huge hit you guys had: The Secret to My Success. Mm-hmm. Michael J. Fox on a huge run again, kind of catching. You know, like a Tom Cruise at the right time, you're, you're catching Michael at the right time, and a comedy, and again, yes. a kind of quintessential '80s comedy that that kind of style. Um, and you guys are doing different. I mean, if you look back at even all the unproduced stuff, you guys are jumping around in genre all we, the whole yeah, time. We did, and, and part of that is because we had seven unproduced movies, so therefore we could, we were writing a bunch of different things depending upon what we were what the job was. So we loved writing comedies, and then when Top Gun came out, we became known as the action guys, which we didn't like as much because right. it's more fun to make people laugh than it is to blow things up. It just is. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard to think of blowing things up in interesting new ways. It's really harder than it looks. Did you find comedy easier to do? Yeah, at comedy I found it easier to do in the sense that if you have a good premise, you have a, a really good, you know, a source of comedy, that this is where the comedy comes from, then you're having fun creating these moments. And, you know, part of it is you're laughing when you're creating comedy. Because if you're not laughing and having a partner, if you guys aren't playing off each other and seeing where the comedy comes from, you're not writing good comedy. Yeah. I mean, it's, you got to enjoy the process of it. So uh, let's let's get to then your book here, because um, obviously you become an educator. Yes, uh, you are uh, a major part of USC's School of Cinematic Arts, which, as you said, covers this wide range of everything from writing to filmmaking to directing to now television projects. There's a comedy initiative, yep. which I've talked with folks in here about. Good Lord, I wish we had had. All those resources when, when I was there in the uh, in the bungalows in uh, the bullpen of of uh, movieolas sitting in there um, and uh, and the digital arts which obviously yes. has become an integral part of that but writing for you is that's your sweet spot and you've got this you want to tell us about the book here. yes I mean uh, part of what I think I, I I do very well and I have a specific approach to is rewriting. It's something, as we talked about earlier, I think it was really the difference in my career, my ability to rewrite and my um, fortitude to rewrite, I think, made a difference. I look back and I say, we just kept taking things to a bigger level. Right. And then also working with a partner, I had, I had to figure out an approach how we were going to rewrite together and how to do things systematically. So um, I've been teaching. I created the rewrite class at USC, and I decided— There's a rewrite class? Oh, absolutely. Oh, wow. Oh, you have to— That's great. Rewriting is something you need to learn to do. It's not something you sort of just fumble through. And, and people—the problem is people just sort of stagger through it, and, and they, they have one draft, and they have another draft, but— is it better or is it just different? Right. And different is not better. So you have to plan as the details guy, as the s- structure guy, as the de- as the mm-hmm. uh, methodical guy. Right. You make it you make it part of the work plan. We're going to write the first draft. We're going to do this. Yep. We're going to do this. We you plan it. Yes. The rewrite's going to come here. That next rewrite's going to come here. Yes. You already have it in mind, so you're not dreading it. You're not worried about it. You know th- that's where you're going to solve the movie, basically. Absolutely. And, and I think with young writers, they don't understand that. They've written a first draft. They're very excited about it. They're very happy that they've written it. And they're, oh, look what I've done. Yeah. But I tell all my, my writers, I said, look, you're going to rewrite this. Stop worrying about it. Mm-hmm. Relax. Yeah. Have fun. Write a first draft. Discover what your movie is. Find out who these characters are. Find out what their stories are. Use this as a process to be playful. As opposed to, I'm, it, this is perfect. No, it's never perfect. No, and, it's going to suck. It's well, gonna be it really is going <laughs> to suck. It is going to suck. Very few first drafts come out really. Sometimes they do, yeah. and it just happens, but not too often. Yeah. So if you go into it knowing you're going to rewrite, it makes you freer to write a first draft because you don't have the pressure on every line of dialogue. It doesn't have to be good. You're going to go over it. You're going to go over it multiple times. So for well, again, I also think it makes you less precious about it too. Yes. If you are if you are agonizing over, and I've done this myself, mm-hmm. if you are agonizing over every 
every line, every page. And then when you go back and you reread everything you just wrote yesterday and start tweaking that in the pro- rewriting in the first draft, for instance, is probably a terrible idea. You just kind of have to move forward. And, and that's my approach. Everybody, you know, no one yeah. does it. No one does it the same way right. twice. Uh, Eric Roth is somebody who spends a year writing a first draft. Now, that's Eric, and, yeah. you know, that's his approach. I couldn't do that. I, I'd lose my mind, and plus I don't think that that's – I don't think it's a, a very good, you know, efficient way to write. I think a lot of people do that and never get one done. Well, that's it. They get one done, or by the time they get to the end, they're just – they don't have anything left of yeah, it. Yeah. I, just, I just know that I want to find the movie. Uh, part, of, part of it is what is this about, and I think that's what people don't understand. What's your story about, and can you tell it to me in a sentence, in a word? Can you tell me what this movie's about? Mm-hmm. In a word. In a word. It should be that clear to you, and it should be should resonate throughout the entire script. Well, that, sometimes you don't know it until you get to the end. You've written it. Says, okay, now I know what this movie is about. Because you're dis- discovering who your character right. is. That 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 pers- that guy you had to discover at exactly. one point, which is I need to follow somebody on on this journey. Yes. And they're going somewhere. They're learning something. They're right. discovering and, something. And what's their personal stake in? What do they care about? And why is this character in this movie? What's specific about this? You know, I, I always say if, if you can take a character – okay, so this is a Top Gun, okay? okay? It's Maverick's movie. Now, let's say I'd say, you know what? I don't like this Maverick character. I'm gonna, you know who I like is Iceman. I'm going to take Iceman and put him – make him the star of this movie. Well, that movie's got to change. Yeah. The whole movie's got to change. That plot can't work. It, it can't stay the same. Those scenes have to change because it's a different character with a different story and a different set of uh, experiences that's going to happen to him. So you have to have a character that's very specific and unique to your story, mm-hmm. and it has to be that character's story. And so that's a hard thing to do, and it takes many passes. Now, see, part of my, my approach is that you're better to do a lot of small changes – over a series of drafts and trying to fish, fix everything in one big rewrite. You know, you will accomplish little by trying to fix it all. If you can focus on different things, I want to focus on some structure. I'm going to focus on character. I'm going to focus on my theme right now. And then I'm going to blend these together. And through a period of passes, it's sort of like layering. You layer your script. How many people do you let read your drafts when you, you're doing this? Or, I mean, do you have a different... When you, were, when you guys were working together, did you have your kind of stock group inside circle that would... Well, because we were a team, we had each other. Yeah. And, and my wife was a very good reader, uh, so she'd read for us and that sort of thing, so we'd get good in, insight. Uh, had good agents, let an agent look at a draft. Uh, pretty much, we, we, we held high standards for each other. We pretty much knew. And then, of course, you're getting, then you're getting notes from the studio. notes. Yeah. And so at that point, and notes is a whole other game. How do you <laughs> handle notes? And, and that's a whole thing to learn because it's, the notes don't always tell you what you need to fix. They, they suggest as a symptom, but they don't suggest a solution. So in, in, it's sort of like tea leaves. What's the most frustrating note you ever got? There's got to be one that sticks. Well, well, there's too many planes in the sky. That was a note like... <laughs> That's pretty awesome. And, 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 and to, you know, and to Simpson Bruckheimer's uh, merit, when we had a meeting with the studio about changes they wanted to make. And one of the executives suggested, and this is one, he said, okay, well, th- what happens is it's about the plane, that nobody can fly the plane and see at the end... Maverick has got to figure out the special technique, and when he figures it out, then he can win the day. And we all looked and said, no, we're not making that movie. And and they basically put it on a shelf and just walked away because they would not not make the changes to get that movie because they knew that's not the movie. Yeah. So – God, this is great stuff. So Screenwriting is Rewriting is available now? It's coming out in January. Oh, great. But you can pre-order it on (laughs) Amazon.com right now and be delivered. Be the first one in your block to own a copy. It's actually, you know, it's the first time I've written a book like this, and it's it's writing a book is hard. I mean, it really is writing a script. It's not that it's easy, but it's fun because you can play with fragments and sentence things. You're creating images, but actually, you know, putting things into really well written sentences is, uh, you know, well, it's a completely different structure. Very different structure, yeah. But uh, but this is great though because I don't know that anybody's ever approached this. I mean, there are a lot of screenwriting books, yes, and there are a lot of screenwriting books that tell you you're going to have to rewrite. Your right. script, but they are almost always about getting that first draft done. Right, which, and, which, which is a, which is at the end of the day not as important as getting your next drafts done. Right, and so uh, you know, part of it I think is because I've taught it, I was able to lay this out into a a, a format that people can use. Like, here's how you approach this: a, a system, a systematic approach, because it, you have you're doing surgery, and that's how I look at. It. You have to preserve what's good. That's the hard thing: is what's good, what works. 
because you don't want to throw the baby out. You don't want to throw out the things that are working. You want to discover, here's what's working in the draft. This is what I've got to protect. Here's the core idea. Now, how do I work around this to improve everything to bring that up? You know, I always like to think orchestra because I think it's it's how you bring in, you know, do you do you bring in the cellos and when do you bring in the, um, you know, the horn section? Right. When does that come in the brass and and how do you you because you want to create a full sound right. in the script and how do they enhance the melody line that you started exactly. with in the first place? Absolutely play? true. Ooh, that's, that's a great true. analogy. Yeah, well, I love that. Is yeah. that in the book? No. <laughs> <laughs> Got to no, I, think, I think I think I mentioned it once. I think I do mention. it. Okay, all right. Yeah, I don't Otherwise, I'm going to send you back for a rewrite. I've rewritten yeah. it so, so many times. Who knows what's there? Are you excited about the young talent you're seeing coming? Absolutely. Through? Are there are there like some really yes brilliant young people doing some great absolutely. stuff? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, it, we have the uh, we're fortunate to basically have some of those talented kids apply to our program, and we really see it. Um, and they're dedicated. You know, people are really dedicated to it. And I think television has really excited people in terms of creating really good writing. We're, uh, more than a few industry people have referred to this as a golden age of mm-hmm. not just television, but just of content, that there is some, I mean, there's a ton of content. Right. There's probably too much. But in that mix, it certainly seems to have given more opportunities and more avenues for really talented people to make their stuff available. And as opposed to the traditional studio system, it's up. It's somewhere. And it seems like the good stuff is found and the audience responds right. and the cream rises to the crop. That's what's interesting about this new media kind of situation. Any thoughts on that? No, I totally I don't agree. mean to pontificate I, no, here. No, 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 you're absolutely right. And I, I, and I think, and this is not trying to toot writer's horns, but I think part of it is, is that it's very writer-centric. Right. So what that means is, is that the ideas that are coming out of the Vince Gilligans, uh, the David Simons, are coming directly from them without all of this interference and all of these notes and all of this, here's a great idea, but let's turn it into a, a different idea. And so you're seeing it coming off the writer's, just straight out of their brains mm-hmm. and working with very talented writing rooms. So you have a lot of talented people focusing in on all of these things, a lot of thought. And then it's not getting developed to death. And I wish the studio would sort of look at that. I mean, you look at a movie like Whiplash, okay, mm-hmm. uh, or Nightcrawler. I mean, to me, those are films I really enjoyed last year because they had that creator's edge to it. Uh, and they were exciting to look at. Yeah. And, and, and I think my big fear of movies right now is that they're, they're – they're becoming so formulaic that they're they're creating an audience that that's all they know. Right. And therefore, they're sort of turning them off in that as opposed to, you know, people want something different. They want something they haven't seen before. And that comes from a lot of talent. Filmmakers have something to say and finding different ways to do it, even in big movies. I, I feel like we've kind of come full circle from what we were talking about when you were going to see big event movies in Detroit. Uh, you know, there was a time in the 50s when television was catching on where the film industry was panicked, and sudden, and that's where we started seeing Panavisions and Cinemascope, yes, right. yes. and, and it was, you know, these big, giant, three-hour epic right. movies on a huge screen. It sure. had to be something big. I kind of feel like we're back to that point now where it's tentpole movies. They have to be IMAX. You have to experience them. And by the way, when they're good... Oh. They're you know yeah. talking about Tom Cruise again. That Mission Impossible movie is a very satisfying action film. It is. It's, it's big. It's loud. It's it's from the moment it starts, you are wrapped up in the thing. It's well made. It's actually well yeah. constructed. I mean, it's a very sort of satisfying big summer movie. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't break new ground, but it does it well. I no. mean, if, if you like that type of movie, you know, I had a good time. But you know? I have actually gotten over the need, for instance, to go see a Noah Baumbach movie in the theater anymore yes. because it's small, it's intimate, it it satisfies me right. from a creative standpoint, and I can watch it on a relatively large screen in my home yeah, I know. I, that, I feel guilty about that. <laughs> I do, too, I know. because I, know. I love because the theater experience. I, I, I yeah. agree. But, but it ends up becoming so much... My home theater experience is really good. I've got a nice surround yeah. sound. I've got a good size screen, and it's it's you know I, I like to see movies that way, the smaller, more intimate ones. Yeah. But then we're not supporting it, so that becomes how does that then monetize to use those corporate words and 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 not get you know marginalized. I mean, you're seeing that. I think again, it's going to move to television. I think it's going to move to HBO. These event movies, right? Um, you know, show oh, me show me a hero on HBO, six episodes only, right? Uh, David Simon, you know, yeah. these sort of things. Um, you still satisfied in the role? Or do you still get a kick out of 
the creative process and, and watching young people come up now that you're not necessarily immersed in the in the business side of it as much anymore? Is is it still satisfied? Yeah, I mean, everybody loves the business. So, you know, you always want to be in the, in the center of the cyclone. You know, it's sort of fun. But this is a very different phase of my life. And I think you go through phases in your life. And sure. I think that's part of it. And I, and I can't be happier in the phase I'm in right now. To me, to share my experiences with really young, talented people is a lot of fun. I enjoy the process. I, I, I enjoy when they succeed and break through. So in trying to share my wisdom, my experience, you know, is a fun thing. And I'm also surrounded by wonderful colleagues. So it's, it's a great faculty there, people who are filmmakers who are making things. And I'm still, I'm still involved. I'm still doing my own creative work. So in writing this book was a lot of fun in terms of, no, it actually wasn't a lot of work, but anyway, <laughs> to tell the truth. But because it's just hard, you know, it is, all creative work is hard work. You know, as a friend said, you write with your butt. You do, <laughs> because right. if it's not in the seat, you're yeah. not writing. Yeah. And so all, at the end of the day, you know, it's perspiration, not inspiration. Yeah. The, I, I, from everybody I've talked to in this room who's reached a certain level of success in whatever field they're in, uh, work ethic is huge. It has to be. And, and I think it goes to your rewriting uh, thing, which is you just have to keep doing it. You just have to keep you doing do. it. The fact that you went through seven unproduced screenplays and went on to the eighth right. just says you got you got to – it's a craft, and it you is have a to craft. keep practicing it over and over right. and over. It's a again. craft, and it's an art form. I mean, it's it's both of the, the art. I think happens by accident. Yes, you know, people don't set on people set to make an art movie tend not to. People sent tend, or they do, and well, nobody wants, to, wants see to see it. it. <laughs> but you try to make a good movie. Everyone tries yeah. to make a good movie, and sometimes it all comes together. Yeah. It's just the right elements are there. It happens. It's like getting hit by lightning, and it's wonderful yeah. for some reason. It just it transcends, yeah. and that that's that's the excitement of it. Well, you know what they say, Jack. There's no business like show, <laughs> show business. business. <laughs> and that's your cue. Oh. There's no business like show business. There's no business I know. Okay. And that's when I start to fade out. <laughs> That'll be a beautiful thing. Jack Epps Jr., thank uh, you so much. Where's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Get a monkey. Get a monkey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, Celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.